Greeks living in a Roman world. They would have imbibed Roman as well as Greek values. And one of the things that Paul is confronting here is a very strong culture of what is called the pater familias, the head of the family. In, in Roman culture, the family was crucial to the state. The family had to be strong. And for the family to be strong, it had to have one central figure who was all authoritative, and that was the father. The father had complete control over the lives of everyone in that household. And that included something called infanticide. In the ancient world, parents had the right, according to Roman law, to, to kill one of their children if their children was not um, fit, they felt, for life. Uh, and, and they did that... Um, especially in the Roman Republic, as we get to the empire, which is the period in which the church is beginning, a much more common approach was called child abandonment. And that man, the paterfamilias, he would, after a child was born, either accept that child into the family, and that's called raising the child. You would hold the or you would uh, take that child and put it outside your door, and that child could be taken by anyone who came by. And that's called abandonment. This is part of the Roman law of the Twelve Tables. They could do this. There was nothing legally wrong with it. And it was a, a great, great discouragement, I think, to... Christians as they confronted that, and Joanne is going to help us understand what the Christian response was to this. Orphans have rights, all right? Well, and not only that, they only have rights. They have legal rights in the courts in the Old Testament, and they even have property rights. Now, this is amazing, because if the dad dies, well, you can just annex that farm, right? No. In Proverbs, don't take the land of the defenseless orphan that's set up in law. And, all right, now here, for all of you folks who thought, I'm not a mom or a dad, I am out of here mentally because this doesn't have anything to do with me, uh-uh. In the Old Testament, it makes it very clear the responsibility for children does not end, begin and end with parents. It is for all of God's people. Now, first of all, it's all, that is specifically true with the orphan, the child who's been abandoned, the child who, for some reason, uh, doesn't have someone to care for them. Now, who is the orphan? A lot of people are confused about that. They assume the only definition for orphan is the one whose parents have died, and certainly that is true. But as Nate has explained, in the ancient world, as in ours, there are many orphans of living children. All of those little Chinese girls, um, most of them, are orphans of living children. The children I serve are often the orphans of drug addiction. Now, one of the things the Old Testament says is all of you parents or not should be including needy children in the family budget. All right, here's the verse, one of many verses. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, it says in Deuteronomy, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, remember, this is an agrarian society. This is an income crop. This is how they make their living. Basically, it says leave the money on the table. If you drop it, it's theirs. It, you do not take your crop all the you do not harvest your crop all the way to the corners. You leave that stuff there so that the orphans and the others who are destitute come in to eat, to, to take, 
and to resell if they need to. All right. In addition, you are supposed to include needy children around your family table. These are the children you are not related to. Think of this as Thanksgiving or Christmas, but certainly for all of the Jewish holidays. The fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, it says in Deuteronomy, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. All right? Now, this is always about more than food. Food's important, especially when you're starving. However... When you have somebody around the family table and have them eat their fill, you tell them something about how you define family. And it can fill that inner wound in a child that is so very significant. I have a friend, Glenn Garvin, who I work with at Royal Family, who was raised in a very abusive alcoholic home. Uh, Mealtimes were chaotic and miserable. One of his key memories was being invited by a school friend to dinner. And he went along, and just as Glenn's about to dig in with his fork, the dad goes, oh, wait a moment, we all hold hands. And he had everybody hold hands, and then he said grace. Glenn said, I didn't really understand what he was doing. I didn't really get the prayer. But as I sat there, I thought, if I ever get to be a dad, we're doing this. There is a sense of mentoring by bringing people in and making them part of your family. And for the orphan, it means everything. This stutters. Okay. (laughs) Jesus, of course, brings it, as we heard this morning, to a whole different level in his approach to children. You heard he was absolutely furious when the disciples decide to shush the children away from him because they assume, of course, the Messiah has more important work to do than to deal with the children. And he quickly clears up the fact that this is the most important work that he does. Something we need to remember when we consider children's ministry. Um, He says, these are the greatest in heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is true for every soulless family in the room as well. You are welcoming a child. You are welcoming King Jesus himself. They are also the most protected, particularly those who need that protection, who are vulnerable. If anyone causes one of those little ones to stumble, Jesus said, this is some of the harshest words Jesus ever records. If anyone calls one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, Matthew 18.6. Now, I don't know if you've followed Coach Sandusky's case, um, but he makes me think of a friend of mine who wants to start the Millstone Foundation. Um, it's, very, it's very easy to understand Jesus' rage at those who pray, who, those who are powerful and pray on the most helpless and the most powerless and the children. Whoops. Uh-oh, what do I do? I can't go backwards. This didn't work at home. Oh, it did. Most prestigious. Now, this is the real counterintuitive one, folks. I used to work in an agency where we took in, it was a child abuse treatment agency, and we had, took in infants and toddlers that were abused or neglected or born drug-affected, zero to four, bottom floor, okay? Second floor was administration. Now, what I noticed immediately was the farthest, farther away that you were, in work or proximity to an actual child, the higher your pay grade and prestige. Um, As you got, you know, the the administrators were up here. As you got closer, the caregivers were minimum wage. That's industry standard. It's just not Jesus standard. He says, flip that. That's the work that's important. Don't ever despise one of these little ones. They're the ones significant in heaven. They're the very center of my work. Now, that theology, that teaching of Jesus drives 
how the church will theologically define what religion is. James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Now, like this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Nothing theologically perfect. But are you loving God and proving it? Now, this wasn't just theory in this case. In fact, back in 2005, um, I was in Rome with my daughter Lindsay and we toured some of the catacombs and uh, I remember being very moved first of all you, you know if you know your church history but it's that's where the the uh, graves the subterranean graves were kept where the dead people were were moved it wasn't a popular place to hang out so the Christians sometimes would go there to do worship worship services in secret since they were being persecuted um, and they had places uh, where they would gather to worship. Now, as part of this, as we did the tour and we saw some of the graves of Christians, there were also a whole portions where there were tiny little coffins. Well, the guide explained that when the early church was meeting there, one of the things that the early church did in all cities, and certainly in Rome, was that they would fan out into the streets and they would look for those exposed children that Nate talked about for the children who were considered not worth raising, too expensive. They were girls. They had some disability. Um, They simply didn't fit into the family's economy. They would gather them up. They adopted the survivors, and they gave a Christian burial to the ones who didn't make it. This is a radical way to start a religion. And I'm happy to tell you that the the early church, the church fathers, continued that tradition. And I'm going to introduce you to two rather famous figures. One very early in the history of the church, just in the generation after the apostles. His name is Justin Martyr. Martyr wasn't his last name. That was a title because he died for his faith. And he was then called Justin the Martyr. uh, But that got shortened by church historians like me into Justin Martyr. So when you hear the name Justin in the early church, it's referring to this figure. He was um, a philosopher converted one day walking on the beach in Palestine, what we now call Palestine, and he met an elderly man who had a hood over his head and who challenged him and talked with him about what he believed was truth. And he, of course, used his philosophical background and quoted Plato. And the man challenged that with scripture. Justin firmly believed that he had met the risen Christ. And from that day on, he had converted and became one of those powerful um, advocates of the church, became what we call a Christian apologist. He wrote a book on Christian worship. And this is what he said, or one of the things he said. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president. That's probably the man in charge of the church finances. Who succors the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want. And those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us. And in a word takes care of all who have a need. This is the early church, and the soulless group that are taking in children are continuing 
this which was uh, a part of Christian tradition. Uh, 200 years later, Lactantius, who was a, a rhetorician, he was a great powerful teacher, he actually worked for two emperors. He became a Christian in about 300, and his life was radically changed. And one of his famous quotes, quotations is, For God, to whom everlasting mercy belongs, on this account commands that widows and orphans should be defended and cherished. The church cherished orphans and widows. That's a great challenge to us. It's a great tradition to inherit. But now we have to get to our text, which I'm happy to do. And uh, I want to give a little context before we really get into the argument of the apostle and review what Paul has said up to this point. And this will be remind you of several past sermons. First of all, Christians, because of the great blessings they've received in Christ, are to live lives worthy of their calling, a life that glorifies God. One aspect of that worthy life, Ephesians 6, 1, is for children to obey their parents, because in obedience to parents, we honor both our parents, and we honor the God who is our Father. In the same way, Christian fathers and mothers live worthy lives when they honor their children, who are gifts of God, in three specific ways. Now, I think this is important that, that Paul has said what everybody expects him to say, children honor their parents, that's one of the Ten Commandments, and suddenly starts talking, fathers, honor your children. Um, as we think about that, what he says particularly is honor them, discipline them, because that's part of the job, in a way that does not anger them or exasperate them, um, as what some of the texts say and translate that as. So no anger or exasperation. Pretty tough, as we all know, who are parents. There are three specific things, I think, that we keep in mind. Um, by not provoking them to anger and not exasperating them, I had a missionary friend who was rather a mentor to me. She was a classic scholar at UCLA who, who went off to China. She told me that learning Greek, Latin, and Chinese was nothing compared to raising her three children, which was much more difficult. Um, and she gave me three principles that I, I tried to follow. First of all, she said, never discipline a child who is starving, who is really hungry. Uh, never try to discipline a child who is exhausted, um, which and when they usually go, I'm not tired. Uh, and always discipline a child individually. She said, nothing I ever tried with one of my children worked with the other two. You know, you have to be a student of your child to know what's going to work as I discipline them in a way that won't exasperate them. And what worked with her sister won't necessarily work with her. Now, another part of that is using age-appropriate discipline. Okay, guys, I have to admit, this is even tough for dedicated parents of really well-behaved children. And I speak from experience um, our oldest, and you know, with your oldest, what do you know about kids, right? They just hand this, this child to you in the hospital and you go, oh, that's a baby. Uh, and, there, and you're supposed to go home and be the expert. Well, what's age appropriate when you don't know that many kids at various stages? Um, so it's a learning process. Well, our oldest happened to be tall for her age, extremely verbal, mature, and very responsive. So everybody expected Heather to, you know, they held her to a different standard than her 
her peers, right? Because they just assumed she was two years older than she was. It wasn't fair. Heather made this much worse because she kept hitting every bar we raised. So her parents were pretty unrealistic. Um, we finally started realizing this one day. We were sitting at the table, and Nate had been lovingly trying to, you know, con- you know, con- get her to behave, not not to be as silly as kids are with their, you know, what happens at the table, right, with food and stuff. And finally, because it wasn't working, he said in in frustration, Heather, stop that. You are acting like a four-year-old. And I, supportive mother that I was, burst into laughter. Um, it's shocking him, and he looked at me, and I managed to choke out, Honey, she is four years old. Um, we, I think we got better. We tried not to exasperate them more than daily, but that was uh, that is an issue. Now, however, the kids that I see, of course, are being disciplined in something you can't call discipline. It's really abuse. She may have heard of the little girl they just discovered a day or so ago, locked in a closet, um, uh, 32 pounds at the age of 10. Um, we, I've seen children who, where cigarettes have been put out on them. Uh, I've seen kids, babies, uh, shaken so badly they'll have permanent brain damage. Um, this is, is a level that bring, goes, goes beyond anger. This goes to a deep-seated rage that can really uh, mark a child's soul for life. Let me tell you about one little boy um, before I go forward. His name is Shane. He didn't live too far away from here when they found him. But when he was five years old, he was sitting at the kitchen table and his dad died of a heart attack in front of him. Um, his mom's drug addicted, dealt with um, mental health issues. She lost custody of the children. In the following two years, Shane was moved seven times. Uh, no one was willing to make a commitment to him. And it, he took it personally, as children do. There's something wrong with him. He was mad. He was grief-stricken, but he was mad. By the time my friends Bob and Nancy met Shane, he would stand sometimes for hours in front of a wall, staring at it, trembling in anger with his arms crossed, refusing to speak to anyone. The social worker said to them, this child is unadoptable. He has so many attachment issues, it's hopeless. Bob said, this little boy is seven years old. We can't give up on him. By the end of that day, the little guy had jumped into Bob's arms, and Bob was convinced this was a kid with a broken heart. And he was right. Now, it didn't happen. That rage didn't go away overnight. Wish it did, but it it never does. Uh, That's a deep, deep wound. But the kind of positive training that Paul is talking about giving to our children did begin to bring some healing, some balm of Gilead into Shane's heart. And what was really key to it was spending the time because that's what nobody had been willing to invest before. I have a friend, Rob Mitchell, who was raised in an orphanage. He said, kids like us spell love this way, T-I-M-E. Don't tell me you love me. Are you going to spend time with me? And that's what was invested in Shane. Also, just the kind of mentoring and nurturing. Nancy worked with him with his schoolwork. She was a teacher. Bob worked with him on sports. He's, he's great, quite a little athlete. Um, but they also worked on, on just saying, we love you, and we're going to hang in there with you even when you get mad. That little boy is now growing up. He's in middle school. He's a, a gifted student, doing well. But it's because he found a dad who was giving him the kind of spiritual nurture, and a mom, the spiritual nurture that Paul is asking us to give. He was not only a father, he was a mentor. And our text goes on and talks about training. In the Lord, instruction in the Lord. That word, instruction, 
um, is the word paidos in Greek, and it's related to the word paidagogos, which, which means a pedagogue. Um, it's not just teaching didactically. Uh, paidagogos was a, a gifted servant in a Roman household who was, hello, who was uh, in, in, paid, actually, uh, quite a good salary to accompany the young boys in that family whenever they left the house. Patrician families, upper-class Roman families, didn't want their sons getting into trouble. So the Pythagogos would go with them and keep them from getting into the wrong crowd. But not only that, he would also teach them how to maneuver through life. He would train them with personal experience. He would go with them and show them things to be avoided. He was, in every good sense, a mentor. He was the one who came beside and helped. And I think that's where Paul is going with this word, instruction in the Lord. I think my dad, in the shoe story, was a paidagogos. And I think we are called to be that to our kids. To not only just didactically tell them, things, but to come alongside with them and teach them how to love the Lord, teach them how to pray, teach them how to give to the church and its ministry. That's a creative thing, to find a way that you can help your child learn the joy of giving, to teach them how to minister in their own simple way to other people. That's what Paul means by instruction in the Lord. And, and that's a great challenge. And we have wonderful examples with us in the families who have taken in these lovely children to, uh, to nurture them, to help them grow, to help them understand this culture, and to understand the loving heart of God. That is the role of the pedagogos. And that's what we're called to do in Christ. Am I on? Can you tell? You're good. I need a technical pedagogos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to destroy this mic. Um, I don't want you to go away and think this was a sermon about an ancient text or a bunch of them and an ancient church. This is so relevant to everything that we are today, where we are today at Water's Edge. Um, we do need to be that kind of a mentor sometimes to the children of wonderful parents, um, like these children from Afghanistan who have loving parents who are loaning them to us for a little while so that they can get better, um, but also to the parents who fall short. This is where the community really needs to step in, and it is so easy for Americans to assume that this is only an international issue, but we have 400,000 children in our foster care system. We have over 130,000 who are waiting for adoption. Most of them will not be adopted because they are older or they're very troubled or they have serious disabilities. In addition, we've got a child trafficking issue in America that most Americans don't know about, but the police know because every month in L.A. they pick up little children who are... Uh, some as young as 12, um, some younger, but many of them start at 12, sometimes up to the age of 17, who are being forced by someone to sell their bodies. And 80% of them, according to a recent police report, came from the South Bay. That's cities like Hawthorne, Inglewood, Torrance, Long Beach. So you do not live 
as far away from the catacombs of Rome as you may have assumed. Now, when I say those things and I talk about the field that I'm in, it is really easy for people to assume, oh, okay, what we need here are professionals. And it's true. For some needs, we do. For the, the children who come from Afghanistan, what they need is really good doctors, and we just walk alongside that process. And certainly the children I serve have lots of needs, whether it's medical or psychiatric or so on, but there is no professional who can, through a professional service, heal their original wound because there's no child who ends up in the foster care system because a professional relationship failed them. They are only there because a personal relationship tragically failed them. And that, my friends, that's what the church is called to respond to. Those children should not be left alone with that level of wound. I'm glad to tell you, however, that there are so many people that I have met over the years who've been able to heal from that kind of abuse. They don't do it alone. They do it not only with God's help, but with the help of people who are willing to love them. Let me tell you about one story. I mentioned this to uh, my friends who were at the Bible study just a few days ago. I'm going to call her Susan. That's not her real name, but she is a very real person. Um, If she were to walk in today, you'd think she was Miss Junior League, just from the way she dresses. Um, She's a La Cunata lady, married to an attorney. But she had a childhood from hell, Um, She had uh, a a mom who was addicted for 30 years to heroin, and her father was cruelly abusive, Um, simply assaulted the the children he should have been protecting, and assaulted them in every way, and most violently. One of her most terrible memories was having him hold her baby sister over the freeway uh, overpass while the children begged him not to drop her. Healing from that kind of assaultive Upbringing is hard, and again, it takes time. But the healing for Susan began with a placement in foster care when she was perhaps eight or nine years old. She'd gotten sick to her stomach, had some kind of mild flu, and the foster mom said, well, we'll keep you home today. Well, that was really unusual for Susan because in her house, it was just total chaos. You know, people didn't, like, cook dinner. You went to the kitchen and prayed you could find something, you know, whether scraping the jelly out of the bottle or whatever to eat. And your clothes always stunk. They were all bedwetters, so you were real popular at school. So the idea of saying, oh, no, we'll, we'll keep you home and take care of you because you don't feel well was odd. But then the foster mom said, I'm going to put you in the master bedroom. She tucks her into the master bed with the pillows, and she brings in a bed tray. Puts on the bed tray, and on the bed tray, she places saltines and 7-Up for that upset stomach, a remote for the cartoons and the television, and then she puts a little silver bell on the tray. And she said, now ring this if you need me. Now, the foster mom left, and Susan just sat and stared at the bell (laughs) for a really long time because it suddenly started to occur to her this might be what love looked like. That picture stayed with her throughout some more horrendous years because she got bounced back. She said, I don't know why they kept sending me back to the same home, but they did, to to her birth family. She never said thank you to that woman. She doesn't remember their name. She was only with the family for a few months. Yet that picture began a sense of healing, a a balm in Gilead, a, a healing ointment of the soul that started to change Susan's life. When she was in high school, she joined a young life crowd, and because of that picture, she could begin to believe what they said about God loving her. She grew up to become a godly mother, completely different from the family that she had experienced. She raised three fine young men. She fostered a fourth. Um, knowing that there are... 
trophies of grace and healing is important to all of us, knowing that it's not just what we say, it's what we do. It's remembering that there is somewhere a child who needs a silver bell, who needs to know that if she rings it, somebody would respond, who needs to know that when you respond to a child like that, you aren't just welcoming a child, you're welcoming King Jesus. Let's just say a quick prayer. Lord, there is no, no one here who has not sometimes not honored their parents. And sometimes that's because the parents failed us and sometimes we failed them. And Lord, there's no parent here, whether they have a toddler or a teenager, who has not sometimes angered that child in their discipline, sometimes perhaps to something close to exasperation, Lord. Sometimes that was because the child didn't understand what we were doing and sometimes it was because we didn't understand the child. Lord, we we thank you that you are our loving Father who offers us forgiveness and healing no matter where we are on this troubled, difficult journey of life. We thank you that you are here with, with teaching, with guidance, and saying, I paid the price. There is healing for you. There is medicine for you. There's forgiveness and love and a new start. Lord, help all of us this week to be on alert Have your spirit show us when there is a lonely child or an adult who needs to be welcomed in your name. Help us recognize your face in their face. In your name, amen.